Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for October, November and December 2013. Titled The Sanctuary, it is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 1 for September 28 to October 4, The Heavenly Sanctuary. But before we start... Let's read the introduction to the whole quarter's lessons. It's titled, The Picture of Salvation. Unquestionably, the greatest revelation of the love and character of God was at the cross, where the Lord offered himself in the person of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for the sins of a world that never had to sin to begin with. To help us to understand better what this great sacrifice meant, God devised the earthly sanctuary, a pictorial representation of the plan of salvation. This earthly sanctuary, however, only modelled the heavenly one, which is the true centre of God's presence and of his activity in the universe. When God established the sanctuary on earth, he used it as a teaching tool. The Israelite sanctuary and its services displayed important truths about redemption, about the character of God, and about the final disposition of sin. The sanctuary formed the template to help us understand Jesus as our sacrifice and high priest. When John the Baptist told his disciples that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, in John one twenty nine and 36, they understood what John meant because they understood something of the sanctuary. The book of Hebrews presupposed the knowledge about the ancient Israelite priesthood so that the original recipients of the letter could grasp what Jesus was doing for them in heaven. Sanctuary terminology was also used to teach truths about Christian living. In short, knowledge of the sanctuary system became a foundation for the new message of salvation in Christ. However, throughout much of the Christian era, the sanctuary message was largely forgotten. Not until the middle of the 19th century, when Seventh-day Adventists began to appreciate God's paradigm of salvation anew, including the message of the pre-Advent judgment, was a fresh emphasis placed on the sanctuary. In the book Great Controversy, page 423, Ellen White writes, The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844 it opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealed present truth as it brought to light the position and work of his people. As the key for a complete system of truth, the sanctuary and Christ's priestly ministry became the basis for the Seventh-day Adventist faith, and still remains so. In fact, the sanctuary message is the Adventist's unique doctrine. At the same time, no other doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, with the possible exception of the Sabbath, has faced so many challenges. Fortunately, throughout the years, these challenges have not only been withstood, but they have increased our understanding of this crucial teaching and have made us, as a people, stronger in our understanding of salvation. Ellen White recommended focusing our highest attention on the sanctuary because 
The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. It concerns every soul living upon the earth. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. It is of the utmost importance that all should thoroughly investigate these subjects. Thus, we can exercise the faith which is essential at this time and occupy the position which God designs us to fill. The sanctuary discloses the heart of God. Studying the sanctuary will bring us close to the presence of the Supreme and to the personality of our Saviour and draw us into a deeper personal relationship with Him. Hence our study for this quarter, God's sanctuary, both His earthly model and the heavenly original. And the author is Martin Probstel, who lives with his wife Mary Ann and their two sons, Max and Jonathan, in Austria. He is a professor of Hebrew Bible at Seminar Schloss Bogenhafen in Austria. Sabbath afternoon, September 28. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this quarter we walk into new territory. Well, it's old territory, but it's something that we haven't studied in the Sabbath school lesson for some time. And as we do so, and we look at the important issues here, we look at what your word has to say. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our memory text is 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 49. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. Let's read that again. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 49. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. Where does God live? This innocent question of a six-year-old could be quite perplexing. It could easily lead to more difficult ones such as, if God lives in one place, how is it possible that he is everywhere? Or, does God need a dwelling place? Or, if he doesn't need one, why does he have one? Or, if he does need one, why does he need it? These are good questions, and given the little we know and the lot we don't, they are not so easy to answer. Nevertheless, we can answer with what we do know. As Seventh-day Adventists, we know from the Bible that God dwells in heaven, that he is actively working in our behalf up there, and that the centre of his work is in the heavenly sanctuary. Scripture is clear. The heavenly sanctuary is a real place, and from it we can learn truths about the character and work of our God. Thus, the focus of this week's lesson is the heavenly sanctuary and what God is doing there for us, because what he is doing in the sanctuary is indeed for us.
Sunday, September 29, God's Residence We often say that God is everywhere, or that He is omnipresent, which means that He is present throughout the universe. As He says in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, Am I a God near at hand, and not a God afar off? Do I not fill heaven and earth? David understood too that nobody can flee from God. Psalm 139 verses 7 to 12 reads, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me, indeed the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Indeed, as Paul argues, God is close to everyone, at least in a spiritual sense, in Acts chapter 17, verses 27 and 28, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." Complementing God's attribute of omnipresence is His eternal existence. God has neither beginning nor end. Psalm 90 verse 2 reads, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He has always been and will always be, as we read in Jude one twenty nine, to God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Question. Read First Kings chapter eight verse forty nine, and Psalm one hundred and two verse nineteen. What do they teach us about the place where God dwells? How are we to understand what this means? Can we understand it? First of all, 1 Kings 8.49 Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. And Psalm 102 verse 19 For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from heaven the Lord viewed the earth. The scriptures are full of statements about God's residence being in heaven. 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 30 and may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And verse 43. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. And verse 49. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. Does this mean that God is more present in heaven than he is anywhere else? God obviously dwells in heaven in a special way. In his glorious presence and pure holiness, the greatest manifestation of God's presence exists in heaven. There is a difference, however, between God's general presence and his special presence. 
God is generally present everywhere, yet he chooses to reveal himself in a special way in heaven, and as we will see, in the heavenly sanctuary. Of course, we have to admit that we are limited in our understanding of his physical nature. He is spirit, as it says in John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, and as such cannot be contained in any structure or dimension, as 1 Kings 8.27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Even so, the Bible presents heaven in John fourteen one to three, and the heavenly sanctuary in Hebrews eight two as real places where God can be seen. We have to believe that even heaven and the heavenly sanctuary are places where God condescends to meet His creation. And so, to finish today, there are many things that are difficult for us to imagine or understand, such as the dwelling place of God. Yet the Bible says that this dwelling place is real. How can we learn to trust in all that the Bible teaches us, no matter how hard it sometimes is to understand? Why is it important for us to learn to trust even when we don't understand? Monday, September 30, Throne Room Question. Read Psalms 47, 69, 93, 1 and 2, and 103, verse 19. What do these texts teach us about God and His throne? First of all, Psalm 47, verses 6 to 9. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations, God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. And then Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And... Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Several visions of the heavenly throne occur in the Bible. Most depict a kind of heavenly assembly with God as king. Interestingly enough, most of them are concerned with human affairs, usually presenting God as acting for or speaking in behalf of the righteous. The Bible also reveals God as sovereign. For instance, the kingship of the Lord is a recurring theme in the Psalms. God is not only king of heaven, but also king of all the earth. We read about that in Psalm 47, verse 7. And not only in the future, but already in the here and now in Psalm 93, verse 2, which we just read. That God's throne is established in heaven has several ramifications. 
One of them is that God is independent and superior to the rest of the universe. Question. Read Psalms 89 verse 14 and 97 verse 2. What do these texts teach us about the character of God and how he rules? First of all, 89 verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. And Psalm 97 verse 2. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. God's rule encompasses righteousness and justice, as well as love and truthfulness. These moral qualities describe how he acts in the human world and underscore his position in the entire universe. These qualities, which compose his rule, are also the same as those that he wants his people to manifest in their lives. And we read about that in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. And that reads, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And we'll compare that with Isaiah 59 and verse 14. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. As in obedience to his natural laws the earth should produce its treasures, so in obedience to his moral law the hearts of the people were to reflect the attributes of his character, said Ellen White in The Adventist Home, page 144. So to finish the day, how can we better manifest goodness, righteousness and justice in a world filled with evil, unrighteousness and injustice? Why must we do these things? Tuesday, October 1. Worship in Heaven Question. Read Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. What do these two chapters teach us about the heavenly dwelling place of God? In what way is the plan of salvation revealed in these texts as well? First of all, Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 to 5. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God." Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. 
The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives for ever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives for ever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And then chapter 5, verses 1 to 14, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and behold, the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength and honour and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb for ever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives for ever and ever. The vision of the heavenly throne room is a vision of the heavenly sanctuary. This is made evident from the language referring to the Hebrew religious system. For instance, the words for door and trumpet in Revelation 4.1 appear often in the Septuagint, an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament in reference to the sanctuary. The three precious stones in Revelation 4.3 are part of the high priest's breastplate. 
The seven lampstands are reminiscent of the lampstands in Solomon's temple. The twenty-four elders remind us of the twenty-four divisions of service for the temple priests throughout the year and their prayer offerings in the golden bowls of incense, as recorded in Psalm 141 verse 2. All of these verses point back to the Old Testament worship service, which centred around the earthly sanctuary. Finally, the slain lamb of Revelation 5 points, of course, to Christ's sacrificial death. Christ the Lamb is the only mediator of divine salvation and is accounted worthy because of his triumph in Revelation 5.5, his sacrifice in verses 9 and 12, and his divinity in verse 13. Ellen White wrote in Selected Messages, Book 3, page 141, Christ took upon himself humanity and laid down his life a sacrifice that man, by becoming a partaker of the divine nature, might have eternal life. What we see in these two chapters, centering around God's throne, is a depiction of God's work for the salvation of humanity. We can see, too, that this work has unfolded before the other intelligent beings in heaven, a key theme in the great controversy motif. So to finish today, think about what it means that Christ, as God himself, took on our humanity and died as our substitute, that is, Whatever wrongs you have done for which you yourself should be punished fell on him instead. Why should this truth motivate everything that you do? Wednesday, October 2, Courtroom Question. Read Psalm 11, verses 4 to 7, and Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. What else does God do in his heavenly temple, and why is this important for us to know? First of all, Psalm 11, verses 4 to 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Even the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance upholds the upright. And Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Many psalms reveal that the Lord is not indifferent to the needs of the righteous or to the injustices that they often face. He will react to the issues that cry out for redress, and he will, as it says in Deuteronomy 25.1, justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, just as any good judge would do. When God judges, the throne room becomes a courtroom, and the heavenly throne a judgment seat. The one enthroned is the one who judges. As we read in Psalm 9, verses 4 to 8, and that reads, For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. 
O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the people in uprightness. That's a concept known in the ancient Near East, where kings often functioned as judges as well. Divine judgment involves both the wicked and the righteous. While the wicked receive a punishment similar to that received by Sodom and Gomorrah, the upright, as it says in Psalm 11, 6 and 7, will behold his face. The classic combination of throne room and judgment appears in Daniel 7, 9 to 14, a significant passage that we will study later. There again the judgment consists of two strands— a verdict of vindication for the saints and a sentence of condemnation for God's enemies. In the book of Habakkuk, after Habakkuk asks God why he is silent about injustice in chapter 1, God answers that he will certainly judge in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home, because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations, and heaps up for himself all peoples. While idols have no breath or spirit, as mentioned in Habakkuk 2.19, the Creator God is enthroned in his temple, the heavenly sanctuary and he is ready to judge. The prophetic appeal is, in Habakkuk 2.20, let all the earth be silent before him. The appropriate attitude toward God's ruling and judging is awed silence and hushed reverence. The place where God reveals his special presence and where he is worshipped by the heavenly beings is the same place where he is rendering righteous judgment for all humans, the sanctuary in heaven. God is just, and all our questions about justice will be answered in God's time, not ours. So, to finish today, however much we cry out for justice, we often don't see justice in the present. Why, then, must we trust in God's justice? Without that promise, what hope do we have? Thursday, October 3, Place of Salvation Question. Read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. What is Christ doing at the throne of God? Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. 
The book of Hebrews teaches that Christ is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest. His work there is focused on our salvation, for he appears in the presence of God for us, Hebrews 9.24. He sympathizes with us, giving us assurance that we will not be rejected, but instead receive mercy and grace, as we read in Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, because of what he has done for us. As in the earthly sanctuary, the heavenly one is where atonement or reconciliation is made for the sins of the believers, as recorded in Hebrews 2.17. The Jesus who died for us is the one now ministering in heaven for us as well. Question. Read Revelation 1, 12 to 20, 8, 2 to 6, 11 verse 19 and 15 verses 5 to 8. What sanctuary imagery appears in these passages? Well, first of all, we look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And chapter 8, verses 2 to 6. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints, upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. And Revelation 11, verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. And finally, Revelation 15, verses 5 to 8. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. 
Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The verses in today's study are just some of the places in the book of Revelation where sanctuary imagery appears. In fact, most of the major sections of the book begin with or contain a sanctuary scene. The first introductory scene shows Christ clothed as high priest, walking among the seven lampstands, Revelation one twelve to 20 the second shows the heavenly throne room, and the verses reveal a wide variety of sanctuary imagery. Throne, lamps, sea, slain lamb, blood, and golden bowls of incense. That's Revelation 4 and 5. The third scene refers to the continual service of intercession in the context of the first department of the heavenly sanctuary. Revelation 8, 2-6. The fourth and central scene gives us a glimpse of the Ark of the Covenant in the second apartment in Revelation eleven nineteen. The fifth scene brings the entire tabernacle in heaven into view, and that was Revelation fifteen five to eight. The sixth scene is unique in that it does not contain any explicit references to the sanctuary, perhaps to illustrate that Christ's work there is finished in Revelation nineteen. The final scene is all about the glorious holy city on earth, which is portrayed as the tabernacle coming down out of heaven in Revelation 21 verses 1 to 8. A careful study of these scenes reveals that they are interconnected, showing an internal progression in the salvation accomplished by God. From Christ on earth, to his heavenly ministry in the first and second apartments, to his high priestly ministry's end, and finally to the new earth tabernacle. Friday, October 4. From the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, page 6, verses 1109, Ellen White comment is, God had a view of heaven, and in discoursing on the glories there, the very best thing he could do was to not try to describe them. He tells us that eye had not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those that love him. So you may put your imagination to the stretch. You may try to the very best of your abilities to take in and consider the eternal weight of glory, and yet your finite senses, faint and weary with the effort, cannot grasp it, for there is an infinity beyond. It takes all of eternity to unfold the glories and bring out the precious treasures of the Word of God. And from the same writer from The Great Controversy, page 414, The abiding place of the King of Kings, where thousand thousands minister unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stand before him, that temple, filled with the glory of the eternal throne, where seraphim, its shining guardians, veil their faces in adoration, could find in the most magnificent structure ever reared by human hands, but a faint reflection of its vastness and glory. 
yet important truths concerning the heavenly sanctuary and the great work there carried forward for man's redemption were taught by the earthly sanctuary and its services. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Look at the last statement in Friday's study from Ellen White. What does she mean when she says that many important truths for our salvation were taught in the earthly sanctuary and its services? What are some of those truths, and why are they so important? 2. What does it mean that God dwells in heaven? How do you understand that concept? 3. This week's lesson touched on the idea that the onlooking universe sees the work that God is doing in behalf of humanity. Why is that a crucial concept to grasp? How does this concept help us to understand the great controversy motif and what that motif means in the whole plan of salvation? What does it tell us about the character of God that he would leave his ways open to the scrutiny of beings that he himself created? Inside Story, our mission story for this week. It's titled The Rude Neighbour. Jules and some choir members were going door to door to share their faith in Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of the Congo. As they approached one home, a man yelled angrily, I don't want you here, get out. Jules tried to talk to the man, but he shouted angry threats at them. Quietly the believers left and went next door. The neighbour, Mangu, listened to the choir members sing several spiritual songs. He thanked them and accepted a pamphlet they offered. On Sabbath, Jules and his friends returned to Mangu's home to sing and share their faith again. Simon, the neighbour who had been so rude to the young people, saw the visitors in Mangu's yard and walked over to see what was happening. Mangu showed Simon the Bible study pamphlet. Simon asked Mangu for the pamphlet. This one is mine, Mangu said. Ask for your own. Simon swallowed his embarrassment and invited the Seventh-day Adventists to come to his house. I saw the Bible lesson you gave Mangu, Simon said. I want to read it too. I want to know what's so special about Seventh-day Adventists. Simon listened to Jules and his friends talk about Jesus. The young people invited Simon and his family to join the choir's Bible study group. "'I'd like one of those pamphlets for my wife and each of my children,' Simon said quietly. Jules smiled as he pulled out more Bible pamphlets. "'Could we have Bible studies here in our home?' Simon asked. Jules agreed. He and one other young man returned to Simon's home every week for a month. Then Simon and his wife and children joined the Bible study group at the church. When the church announced evangelistic meetings, Simon and his family attended every meeting.' Simon and his wife asked to be baptised, and later the couple's three teenage children joined the church as well. Simon, the once rude neighbour who wouldn't allow the youth into his home, now shares his faith with anyone who will listen. He urged his neighbour Mangu to check out the Seventh-day Adventist, and Mangu now attends the Bible study group every week. Our mission offerings help reach people in difficult places such as Kinshasa, where less than one in a thousand is a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Thank you for sharing. 
This week's reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Your reader has been Dr. Percy Harold. Remember, God is always faithful.